0: Well, thank you for joining us if you're watching online and a shout out to all of you at South Lake and at north Richmond hills you 'll notice I did not say West Fort Worth because it 's my privilege this weekend to preach live at West fort Worth and If you are out of town and you watch us every week and you ever come to Tarrant County, I promise you 'll have a great experience if you ever attend the South Lake campus, the West Fort Worth campus or the North Richmond Hills campus and I hope that you'll have a chance to do that soon. Maybe it'll be on Renew Weekend. It's one of my favorite weekends of the year. On that weekend, we partner with ministries here in Tarrant County and around the world that literally save lives. I know that sounds kind of grandiose, but I mean literally, I know stories of lives that get saved because of the ministries that we support, saved from addiction, saved from abortion, saved from starvation. Literally, lives are saved And we have a chance that weekend to pick those ministries that we want to personally give to. And every dollar given, Renew Weekend, goes away to save lives. So be praying now. Get your kids and your friends involved because Renew Weekend is going to be wonderful. So, a life hack is simply a winsome, creative way to solve a problem. And if you're a believer in Jesus you live with a problem every day and that is your culture doesn't support most of your dearest convictions. I call it swimming upstream in a downstream world. And so we're walking through the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. We only have this lesson and next time left to gain some wisdom on how to navigate that path well. How can we hold on to our dearest convictions without holding in contempt the people who don't share those convictions with us so in essence we're looking for spiritual life hacks now I hope by now you have thought of some life hacks you've maybe even taken advantage of some of the life hacks I've taught you but let's face it not every idea for a life hack is a good idea I saw, for example, on the internet, someone who had lost a headlight, and they thought, hey, life hack. So here's what they did. They got a bunch of flashlights and a bungee cord, and they tied them together. Now, I think that's a pretty failed attempt, at a life hack. Just go get to a headlight, okay? Or I saw on the internet a guy who apparently, while he's at his computer, has a great desire to eat some cheese and grate some cheese. He doesn't have a cheese grater, but he had a computer console, so he used his console to grate his cheese. Now, that's a guy who's going to buy a $1,000 computer, replace the one he just ruined, or buy $2 and go get a greater, okay? That's a very poor life hack. Or, as you know, in some communities now, it's becoming illegal to talk on the phone while you hold it in your hand. And if you don't have a Bluetooth, what do you do? Well, this guy said, I'll just attach my phone with a rubber band. Okay, now you do that, and the police are going to pull you over. Because you're weird, and you don't need to be driving, okay? That's a failed life hack. But the last one is the worst, Okay, we all have all had this problem. We set our alarm, we, it goes off, we're tired. That's why we have this awesome function called snooze. But you hit snooze too often, you get in trouble. So here's what one genius decided. I'll just tape some thumbtacks to the snooze button, okay? And that'll keep me from hitting the snooze. No, it won't. It'll just bloody your hand. Oh, you'll get to work on time, but you can't work because you've got bandages all over your fingers. That is what I'd call a miserable life hack. Now, I bring that up because Daniel 5 is the story of one of history's greatest fails. It tells the story of a king who tried to drink his way out of a problem. But he didn't count on God crashing the party. And from his fail, I think we can learn some hacks that will actually help us succeed that are literally, and forgive the pun, but they are off the wall. We'll get there in just a moment. But before we get to chapter 5, I need to apply and set some context, okay? So, from chapter 1 to chapter 5, about 50 years of time have passed. In chapter 1, Daniel was a young teenage boy taken by King Neb to serve in the court in Babylon. By chapter 5, he is now a man in his 70s. He's an old man who has lived over five decades in exile in Babylon. And Neb has been gone and dead now for a long, long time. A new king is on the throne. In fact, The text is going to call him Neb's son, but he wasn't literally Neb's son. The word also could mean successor. And in their culture, whenever you were in succession to a famous king, you often called yourself the son of that king, even if that wasn't true biologically. We know who Neb's son was because the Bible tells us in 2 Kings 25, he was a man named Evil Murdoch. And he served after Neb, but he got assassinated by his brother-in-law. And his brother-in-law served for a while. And then he died, and his son sat on the throne for a while. And then he got assassinated by a man named Nabunidus. Now, Nabunidus was related somehow to Nebuchadnezzar by marriage, but not a direct son. And he didn't like sitting on the throne of Babylon. He was an adventurer. So he spent almost the entire time of his reign away from the capital city, out there fighting battles and doing things on the frontier. So he has a son named Belshazzar, and he makes him regent of Babylon. So in the throne, that's whose sitting. That's why in the story you're going to see he's going to offer Daniel the third in line to the kingdom. The reason he couldn't offer him the second is because he was the second. Nabonidus is king, but he's gone. Belshazzar, co-regent, is ruling in Babylon in his place. And there's one more thing that's going on that's very important. Babylon, the city, is surrounded by the Persian army. Do you remember that statue in chapter 2? When Daniel told Neb, "Neb, you're the head of gold and after you is going to come another kingdom? That kingdom was the Medo-Persian kingdom. And that army has been camped now for several months outside the city of Babylon. And everyone knows they're there. And one last thing. Daniel is a forgotten man. Under Neb's reign, he had become a man of great importance, a man who was respected. But after several kings, he has been shelved, he has been pushed aside. He is a nobody now. That's the context for chapter 5. Now, Bel Shazar, and I'm going to call him Bel for short the rest of the sermon. He can look over the wall and he can see this giant Persian army. And his father, the king, is off somewhere on the frontier doing other things. But he had reason to believe it wasn't as bad as it looked. Because everyone considered Babylon to be an impregnable city. See, even secular historians admit this city was huge. It had walls 300 feet high. I'm not making that up. 80 feet wide. You weren't going over or through those walls. And it encompassed a huge area with lots of farmland. They had a ton of food in Babylon inside the wall. On top of that, the Euphrates River went right under the wall and right through the city. They had all the water they needed. So Bella's thinking, you Medes can just stay there all you want. We'll just outlast you. We're not going to starve. We've got all the water we need. You're not coming through or over our walls. And my dad's going to come back someday with an army. And so I'm just going to wet you out. So that's what's going on. But still, everybody inside that city knows the Persians are outside. And the talk is rampant, and people are getting nervous. And so Bell thinks, I need to boost the morale of my citizens. So, how do you do that? Well, everybody knows booze. So he decides, I'm going to throw a big wine rally. So, verse one King Bell gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles. And drank wine with them. And now, he's not talking about, hey, let's have a great steak dinner with a a glass of Merlot. No, this is, get the kegs out, boys. We are going to have a party, and we're going to forget about what's going on outside those walls. Okay? And then he proposed the most foolish hack in history. Because, you see, this was part drunk fest and part worship service look at what he did while bel was drinking his wine he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that neb his father had taken from the temple in jerusalem so that the king and his nobles his wives and his concubines might drink from them So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines, drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So here's what's going on. This is more than just a stupid paternity tank. This is a deliberate act of blasphemy. Bell's thinking, my people are tense. My people are nervous. They need to be reminded how mighty our gods are. Our gods are bigger and better than those Persian gods. And my people have forgotten that. So let's just go remind them of all the gods we've conquered in the past. I tell you what, boys. Let's go get those sacred goblets from the temple of that Israeli god. And let's drink. And and you see what they were doing as they were drinking is they were mocking. And the more they drank and the drunker they got, the more extreme their curses got. As they mocked all the gods, especially the God of the Jews. And this party is getting out of hand. This party is about to be in God's hand. And Baal... Is about to set the record for the quickest anybody in history ever got sober. Because look what happened. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. And the king watched the hand as he wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. I guess so because he doesn't know what's going on but somebody is saying turn out the lights the party's over and then for the third time and I think the writer of the book of Daniel is making a point here he didn't want you to miss for the third time now the king of Babylon is going to call his astrologers and his enchanters and his diviners Neb did it in chapter 2. He did it in chapter 4. Now Bell's going to do it in chapter 5. And all three times, these guys who work in the occult, these guys who deal with the dark side, they say, we have no clue. Now, you think God's trying to tell us something? I'm going to say it again. You don't Find truth, and you don't discern reality by going to any source that is enabled by the Father of Lies. Now, some of you need to hear this because I'm telling you right now in this church, we got people that check in your horoscope every day. And you're going to the psychic, or you're playing with the Ouija board or the tarot cards. Now, listen to me. All of that traffics in the occult. And all Satan's going to do is try to get you further from the truth instead of closer to it. Because you can't go to the father of lies to find out what God is thinking. And so it didn't work. But now remember, there's somebody in Babylon that does understand the mind of God. But he's been forgotten. He's been shelved. No one remembers him anymore except one woman. One woman who had done her history homework. Now, she's called the queen. She probably wasn't Bell's wife. I don't know if maybe she was Neb's wife or one of Neb's daughters. All we know is that she remembered Daniel. We don't know her identity, but she remembered and she knew his. So she shows up at this party. Everybody's freaking out. And here's what she says. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him in the time of your father he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods your father king neb appointed him chief of the magicians and trenders, astrologers and diviners call for daniel and he will tell you what the writing means so daniel gets summoned now if you're daniel what would you be thinking You've been dismissed by some pompous punk king who has been dissing your God. Everything you've done to bless Babylon has been forgotten. Would you want to help? But once again, although he's got a lot of reasons at this point to be uncooperative and to be bitter, Daniel Seems again to believe, I am where I am, when I am, for a purpose. I'm here, God has me here for a reason. And so once again, Daniel serves God in Babylon, and Daniel serves Babylon for God. So he comes into the room, and Bell says, man, I'm going to give you money, I'm going to give you clothes, I'm going to make you third in the kingdom, if you can tell me what that just means. Daniel can't be bought. He says, you can keep all that stuff, king. Besides that, who wants to be captain of the Titanic? Who wants to be third in charge of a kingdom that is about to go down? Because Daniel knows this party room is about to become a courtroom." And his assignment is to read the verdict. So Daniel says, this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. And here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. In Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes. And Persians. So some of you have never heard this story. This is where the phrase handwriting on the wall comes from. It's also where the phrase uh, your days are numbered comes from. Daniel comes into this room with a thousand nobles and says, King, your days are numbered. It's over, and it was, because again, historians tell us exactly what happened. In a brilliant military maneuver, what the Persians did was many miles up the road from the river, they built some canals, and they diverted the Euphrates River. And so the water level in the channel went down so far that the Persian army could literally walk under the wall of the city right into it. And in just one quick night, they conquered and took over with hardly anybody dying except, guess who? It says, that very night, Bel, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62 now has there ever been a greater fail in history but there's a question I want you to wrestle with we've already seen for four chapters God was pursuing Neb Neb was a braggart Neb was rebellious Neb was full of himself and God gave Neb chance after chance so here's my question Why didn't Baal get a second chance? And here's my answer. He did. See, Baal didn't have an ignorance problem. He had an obedience problem. When he sent for those goblets and those vessels from the temple, he knew exactly what God he was messing with. And Daniel told him so. Let's go back and let's read what Daniel said. Your Majesty, the Most High God gave your father Neb sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from the royal throne and stripped of his glory until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Bel, his son have not humbled yourself though you knew all this instead you've set yourself up against the lord of heaven you had the goblets from his temple brought to you and you and your nobles your wives your concubines drank wine from them you praised the gods of gold bronze iron wood stone which cannot see or hear or understand but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Bell, you played the role of pompous, arrogant fool. And you knew what you knew. Your father, Neb, sent a letter to the entire kingdom. He went public. It was on the front pages. Everybody knows what happened to Neb. Everybody talks about the seven years he spent out there like a wild animal. And everybody knows that he gave the God of the Hebrews glory and honor, and he went to his deathbed worshiping and exalting that God. And you knew that. You had handwriting on the wall before there was ever handwriting on the wall. You ignored the mouth of God. And so now you get his hand. You know what that reminds me of? In Luke 16, Jesus tells a parable about a rich man and a beggar at his gate named Lazarus. And they both die. And Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom and the rich man is in torment. And he says to Abraham, would you send Lazarus to go and warn my brothers to get their life together so they don't wind up where I am? And remember what Abraham said? No. They have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they've already been warned. They've got the clear revelation of God how to live life. See, here's the thing. God always warns before he judges. The problem in Babylon is forgetting that God always judges. Here's a principle I want you to take with you. I want you to know that God holds us accountable for what we know. I hear a lot, what about those people that have never heard about this? They've never heard about that. God doesn't hold men responsible for the light that they don't have. But listen to me. God has given all men plenty of light. That's what Paul says in the book of Romans. Look at this with me from the first chapter. God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made they can clearly see his invisible qualities. His eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Here's what the Bible says. Do you really believe that nothing produced something? That life came out of non-life you can look at creation and know there is a designer and somebody bigger than you is going to hold you accountable what paul is saying folks is listen on judgment day pleading ignorance is not a good strategy Babylon doesn't have an ignorance problem. It has an obedience problem. And here's what happens. When you and I live decade after decade after decade in Babylon, we can start to casually dismiss our failure to live obediently. Now, you know that's true. We can start to get really sloppy in some areas of obedience when we know what God wants so this is really an important lesson it's a heavy lesson I'm going to make it up front but I'm going to share with you three principled hacks for surviving Babylon for resisting the temptation to get sloppy with obedience and here's the first I want you to remember Babylon will be judged There is no nation, there's no country, there's no empire that intimidates God. You want to know about Babylon? Go get an encyclopedia. And here's what you're going to find. Babylon, comma, ruins of, dot, dot, dot. Because God always judges Babylon. The Bible says, Isaiah chapter 40, the nations are like one small drop in a bucket. They're no more than the dust on his measuring scales. Do you know the Bible often uses Babylon as a metaphor for judgment? That Babylon in the Bible is a symbol for all human empires and their inability to stand before God. In fact in Revelation the chapter 18 you will remember that Babylon is fallen and the word of the prophet is get out of Babylon. Don't put your hope in Babylon. God always judges Babylon. Now here's the thing. Satan Knows he's doomed. That's why the Bible says his fury is so great. Satan knows he's doomed. Babylon never does. Babylon always thinks it will last forever. But all empires have expiration dates, national and personal. Great preacher in LA years ago named Evie Hill, great African American pastor. And he was invited one time to a very affluent uh, white church to preach and he said man your neighborhood's just not like my neighborhood at home you know why? you people have no graffiti and I would love to give you some he said I'd love to get a pan of paint I'd love to go to your homes and to your fences and to your cars and I'd love to paint one word temporary it's so easy when you have so much to think you just get to keep it Forever, you don't. Babylon has an expiration date. Don't interpret slow justice as no justice. You know why God waits? The Bible says God's patient because God wants to save everybody in Babylon he can. But let me tell you, even right now, outside the walls of Babylon, there's an angel army. And the only reason it hadn't come into Babylon is because God's held his hand up when God pulls his hand down it's over the future doesn't belong to the statue the future belongs to the rock don't forget this Babylon will be judged don't forget this second hack truth will be validated see Babylon often treats truth as relative it's a reality that is fluid constantly in flux here's the truth Polls don't decide the truth. Changing values do not define truth. God's revelation stands regardless of who or who does not accept it. There's a man named William Willimon, a theologian at Duke University, that said early in his life he was a uh, went to a funeral out in the country of Georgia, little country church. And he said, this old country pastor got up there and said, I've never been to a funeral like this in my life. He was pounding the pulpit and he was saying things like, it's too late for Joe. Joe can't straighten out his life now. Joe can't spend more time with his family now. But you can, you can do what Joe can't do anymore. It's too late for Joe, not too late for you. This is the day of decision. So Willimon says, I got in my car with my wife, and I was furious. I said, that was so insensitive. That was so manipulative. I was disgusted. And his wife said, I know, I know, I know. And everything he said was true. You see, Babylon doesn't respect the holy things of God. But truth's going to be validated, people. Listen real close for the next three minutes. I know there's a lot in the Bible that's hard to understand, but there are some things God's made clear. They are sacred, holy things to God. One is life. God's the author of life, He makes that very clear. Life in the womb, life in the prison cell. Life that doesn't think like you, look like you, or vote like you. All life is sacred. Babylon forgets that. Marriage is sacred to God. He made it pretty clear in the very first of the Bible. God designed marriage. God made it clear it is to be monogamous it's to be heterosexual, it's to be permanent, and only in marriage does sex belong. Jesus came along and affirmed that picture very clearly in the Gospels. Now Babylon says, I don't know if we think that anymore. I mean, you don't need to get married to have sex, and hey, marriage is like a car, you're just going to have to get a new one every now and then and this whole it's got to be a man and a woman that's not how we think anymore and Babylon decides they can just take a sacred thing of God and do what they want with it but the Bible says marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure because God will judge the sexually immoral be very very careful what you do with marriage because it matters to God by the way so does your body Your body's holy. Every person that's listening to me right now who is a Christian is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And if you abuse your body by the way you eat, or by the lifestyle you live, or by how you uh, steward your sexuality, you're you're being trivial with a sacred thing. I know some people listening to me right now, rolling their eyes. Oh man, he went off fundamental on us. Listen to me. The Bible says every time you have sex, you've taken Jesus with you. So you honor God with your body. Because your body's holy. It belongs to God. Don't you think you could do anything you want with something that belongs to God? Oh, by the way, one more. How about God's name? Now, I know I live in an OMG culture. Again, I just tell you something? God's name is not an exclamation point. If you want to act surprised about something, use my name. Okay? My name is not holy. Do anything you want with it. But don't use God's name. God is very clear. Honor my name. I could go on and on. I'm just saying that when you live in Babylon, Babylon will try to get you to party with sacred things but the party's going to crash and the truth of God is going to endure God's word will not be shelved and neither should God's people hey I want to I want to close with some encouragement one more thing just remember this faithfulness will be recognized see Babylon picks the wrong heroes just remember that true honor isn't determined by kings, it's determined by God. Babylon may forget about you. Babylon may shelve you, Babylon may dismiss you, but don't switch jerseys, skip the parties, don't forfeit the everlasting for the temporary. Let me tell you one of the coolest stories I've come across in a while. man's name was Cliff Young. Now, in 1983 cliff showed up at a race not just any race it was the sydney to melbourne ultra marathon 544 miles everybody that showed up was under 30 had corporate sponsors were ultra athletes cliff was a 61 year old single potato and sheep farmer everyone wondered what are you doing here says well i just think i can run this race they all thought he was nuts in fact he showed up in overalls. He trained in galoshes. See, here's the thing. On his farm, they didn't have tractors. They didn't have, they didn't have much money. So he lived on a 2,000 acres. So whenever the storms were coming or he had to go round up the sheep or the cows, he got out there and he would run for two or three days in his galoshes and get them in. He wanted to try to run. Everyone laughed. They thought, well, that's, he'll like a, a day. So they take off. They take off, and here's what you do. You run for 18 hours. You sleep for six, and this goes on for five or six days until you run 544 miles. Well, Cliff got way behind. Everybody went to sleep. Cliff just kept running. He only slept for two hours the first day. He just kept running. The next day, he only slept for one hour. That's when people began to realize, when Cliff said, I would go and chase my sheep for two or three days, he meant for two or three days. He just kept running. Day five came, and Cliff Young was in the lead. Okay, get this. He crossed the finish line nine hours ahead of anybody. They gave him a $10,000 prize. He didn't even know there was a prize. So you know what he did? He waited for everybody to finish, and gave the rest of, he gave the money to all the other competitors. Do you know why he won? Because he just kept running through the dark. Do you know how Daniel survived? Didn't matter how dark it got. He just kept running. He lived to his name. You know what, remember what his name means? Daniel's name means God is my judge. He just never forgot that. God, not Babylon. God is my judge. And when Babylon fell. Daniel was still standing. See, Babylon's going to fall again. Judgment's coming. Did you know God's warned the world? You know where he warned them? Calvary. We know Calvary is a message of the love of God, but you know Calvary is also a clear message from God. I take sin seriously. I don't ignore it. God's wrath must judge sin. So he will judge it in Christ or he'll judge it on us. All men have been weighed and found wanting. None of us, we're all broken. None of us can stand before a holy God and proclaim our righteousness. But you see, on the cross... Jesus took the judgment that we deserved and then He placed His righteousness on our scale. That's why the Bible could say there's there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Babylon's going to fall. I'm not afraid. I'm not dreading the fall of Babylon. You know why? Because I have been invited to a banquet in the New Jerusalem. You can't crash that party, but you can be Jesus' guest, and I promise you, it won't be a fail. I'd like you to pray with me. So Father, I, I pray that this message will encourage the discouraged i pray it will convict those who were sloppy with obedience i pray that it will enable those who are tired to keep running through the dark but i pray most of all right now that if anyone listening to me has not asked jesus To be their Savior. To take their due wrath on Himself. And be covered in His righteousness. I pray God. I pray. That this is the day. They humble themselves. And fall at the feet of Jesus. He became sin who knew no sin. So that we could become His righteousness. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We don't have to be afraid. Amen. So let me ask you to stand. If you're on a prayer team, would you take your place? We're offering the gift of prayer, the gift of encouragement. Most of all, we're offering the gift of Jesus. And this could be your moment to make that simple request that's lived out in baptism to receive the righteousness of Jesus. Please come.